0: So I had an interesting experience the other day. I went to uh, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes at Maryville College, and I felt pretty old because I remember when I started in youth ministry, several of my kids would use the word "sleigh," uh, which meant good, not like S-L-E-I-G-H, not like, you know, Santa's slay, but like sleigh S-L-A-Y, like that slays. They meant it was good. It's kind of like fire. It means it's good. They could just say good, but they don't, you know? It's kind of like how when you were young, they said it was bad, and that meant good, okay? So here, they they said slay, but it was a college sophomore who said it, which made me feel old. (laughs) When I was younger, one of the slang terms that we would, actually, we didn't say it. I'm from Oklahoma. It was more of a South, Southern California kind of thing, where they would say righteous, like it was a good thing. All the surfers would say, that's righteous, Maybe you remember watching like Finding Nemo, and the turtles are kind of the surfer dudes, and they're like, righteous! That, that's actually what we're going to talk about today, is righteousness. Uh, but it, it's not in the sense uh, that the surfers would say, okay? So this morning, as we look at Galatians chapter 3, we see that the righteous live by faith, receiving and relying on on the holy spirit. Now if we look at verses 3 through sorry 1 through 5, we're going to see that the righteous received the spirit through the hear, through hearing with faith. Now Paul, uh, you know how knows how to start a good good paragraph. Oh foolish Galatians, he says. Uh, when the college Bible study was working through this passage, one of them suggested that you know how people get tattoos of Bible verses. It's a really good conversation. Conversation started with Oh Foolish Galatians, the tattoo, okay? Not recommending getting tattoos, but, you know, here we are. Oh Foolish Galatians. Paul uh, thinks on this matter of hearing with faith versus works of the law, he believed that the Galatians, the, the churches in Galatia, had gotten things so messed up that they had exchanged true Christian wisdom for foolishness. And so he calls them as such. He even asks them, Who has bewitched you? Uh, other translations might say it like, Who has cast a spell on you? Paul is so concerned uh, for the folly of the Galatians that he thinks they may not have only been recipients of like smooth talkers, but maybe even spell casters. Who, who, who were tricking and betraying the truth of the gospel. And so, he asked them, Who has bewitched you? Who has, who has cast a spell on you? Because it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, in that verse, Paul is not claiming that the Galatians were witnesses to the crucifixion of Jesus. But he is saying that in the preaching of the word of God, that Jesus was so vividly portrayed to them as crucified, it was as if they stood before Jesus with Mary his mother and John his disciple and witnessed the horrible, terrible crucifixion of Jesus. And we all ought to take these words to heart. Because we are all so easily led to a place where our focus is no longer on Christ. Where our eyes no longer see him as the one who was crucified for our sin. We've been, uh, we just wrapped up actually last week. Our, our second group studying that, the book Flickering Lamps. And in both discussions, we talked about how our focus as a church must be on Christ. And in those discussions, multiple people multiple times have had to admit for far too long, they themselves or our church as a whole has not had our focus on Christ. We worried on problems. We were more concerned about numbers. We lost our focus. Like the Galatians, who had heard the gospel so vividly that it was as if they stood before Jesus at his death. But now they were foolish people who had been bewitched. Because they had stopped focusing on Christ. Like Peter, walking on the water. He could stand there as long as his eyes were focused on Christ. Yet when he focused on the waters themselves... He began to sink. And that's exactly what happens with us and with our churches when we stop focusing on the crucified Christ. Now, they had received the Spirit through hearing this message with faith. and In in verse 2, Paul really gets at it with this question. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The issue was the Galatians had clearly received the Holy Spirit through hearing with faith. Yet they had moved to a place where they were now seeking to follow Christ. They were now seeking righteousness based upon works of the law. They were now being taught by these false teachers to trust their flesh, literally, to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law. And this, I think, is exactly what we do sometimes. I've said it before we don't graduate from the gospel. Yet, many times in our churches, we treat the gospel as a message for sinners and lost people. And then we say, now that we're saved, what do we do? We be good. We we just go on being good. We don't worry about the gospel. The gospel got us to God, and now we're going to finish it ourselves. In verse 2, Paul asks that central question. And I think it's worth us considering. Because he's saying that if hearing with faith brought you from death, To life, if it brought you from being an old creation to being a new one, if it brought you from being counted as a wicked sinner to being counted as a righteous believer, if hearing with faith that did all of that, if it could make such a drastic change and difference in your life, why are you now abandoning it and moving on to the thing that you had before that never got you there in the first place? Why are you now trying to be perfected by works of the law? The works of the law couldn't even give you a false start in receiving the Spirit and following Christ with obedience. But, and if you couldn't start with them, why do you think you can finish with them? And so we're all tempted, I think, like the Galatians, lest we think they're foolish and we're not, We're all tempted to receive the Holy Spirit through faith, because that's an easy thing to do, and then to buckle down, stop worrying so much about faith, and focus simply on being a good person, being a nice person, being a generous person, divorced from faith. Uh, In James, we studied in the the youth Sunday school this morning, James chapter 2, and he says that faith without works is dead. But so it is also true that works without faith are useless and dead as well. And so we cannot go and embrace the works of the law to make us righteous, to count us as righteous, when they never could do it in the first place. Even at this present time in the passage... The Galatians have the Spirit. It says in verse 4, sorry, in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even here, they have the Spirit, and they see miracles done, done among them because they hear God's good news with faith. So it's not just that they were Made right with God, counted as righteous by faith, that they were justified by faith. It's now moving on that they're seeing miracles done, they're seeing the spirit working. And how's that being done now? Well, Paul says it's still being done by hearing with faith, is it not? It's not being done through works of the law. You know, and, and I also think this is this is almost a side note, but I think it's connected. You know, one of the problems with judging the church or, or even pastors by the results they produce rather than the faithfulness they require is that we will move away from faith to works of the law. When we are so concerned about the results of the things we do rather than the faithfulness required to do them, then we become far less concerned about faith and far more concerned about producing those same results. We manufacture them. The key word there being man. We manufacture the works of the Spirit through our own works. Because works of the law provide us with results that faith won't. Works of the law produce the results that some of us want to see. I mean, think about your, maybe your children or your grandchildren or your neighbors, kids, or, or whatever, and you think about them and you think about how they've grown. And what do you want to see from them? You want to see that they are staying out of trouble, that they're getting good grades, all those kinds of things, that they're working hard, maybe even getting some extra money to help provide for things for themselves or in the home. Those are all things that are produced not simply by faith, but they are produced by works. Now, can faith lead to those things? Of course, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that if we become so concerned about those results at the end of all the work we do, then of course we're going to be people who are just legalistically trying to manufacture these results, when instead we should be trusting with faith in God. That he might change us into the kind of people who are faithful. And at the end of the day, if we are faithful and there are no results, we are far better off than if there are a ton of results and no faithfulness. For the things that matter, things like receiving and relying on the Holy Spirit, hearing with faith works. Works of the law don't. Now, Paul turns to talk about Abraham in verses 6 through 9. And here we see that the righteous are called righteous because they have faith. Now, verse 6 here is so vital for understanding not only Paul's argument, but understanding what we talked about last Sunday, justification by faith. Now, if you don't know what justification means or faith last week is probably a better thing to turn to you can you can watch the sermon online on our website or on YouTube but let me just simply say this justification being the act of God declaring us as righteous declaring us a part of as a part of his family and faith faith is like not just believing with your head that you know it's true or believing with your heart that you want it but actually trusting and relying it with your whole being and so We are to have faith in Christ. Now, Paul quotes in Galatians 3, 6, Genesis 15, 6. Let's go ahead and turn there for just a moment in our Bibles. If you have a copy of God's Word, just turn to the first book in the Bible, just 15 chapters, Genesis chapter 15. Now, I've told you that as we're reading Galatians, good thing to read, It's Genesis, specifically chapters 12 through like 25, that tells the story of Abraham. Good thing to go read. We're just going to read these first six verses in chapter 15. This is Genesis. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Elisha of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, looking at these verses, we see that God made a promise, a covenant with Abraham. And this promise it uh, was strange for Abraham because at that point, Abraham did not have children. At that point, he was still waiting for a child that God had promised him. He was not expecting that. He said a member of his household, a lazier of Damascus, would be his heir. That's not like a member of his household does not mean his son or a sibling. It means like a slave or a servant. He's saying my inheritance is not going to go to my son because I don't have one. It's going to go to some servant in my house. And God says, no, your heir will be your own son. And not only that, he told them to go out and look at the sky. And look at all the stars. And number them. And he said, so shall your offspring be. Now, if you have lived in the United States for very long, you can probably look up at the sky at night and not see that many stars at all. Now, I'm not going to get into a science lesson, but the short of it is, it's primarily because where we live, we have so much light on street lights and houses and buildings that there's actually like this light pollution that causes it where we cannot see the stars in the sky very easily at all. In fact, that's why if you're going to go look at stars or or anything like that, you actually have to drive out into the middle of nowhere so that you can actually see them. I remember when I went overseas for the first time. I wish I had time to tell the whole story, but I don't. Uh, Because it's just funny. But the short of it is we end up late at night. After all these flights, we end up late at night in a village we did not expect to be going to. Uh, It was only 100 miles away, but 100 miles takes a lot longer to get there than it does here. And we're tired, and we're getting out of the car, and we're going to go visit. We're going to go into a chief's house and visit them before we go find where we're sleeping for the night. And when we get out uh, of the vehicle, my professor who I was with turns to me and says, look up. I was like, what? And he's like, look up. And and even in this village, looking up, there are more stars in the sky than I even knew existed. I mean, at that point in my life, anytime I've looked at the sky, I've not been too impressed, to be honest with you. But if you can find the right places to be, you can see almost an incountable amount of stars. I mean, it was just gorgeous. Truly, I wish I lived there only because of that. So when God makes this promise to Abraham... I don't know about you, but it would be very hard to believe. As an older gentleman, passed his child having days, his wife certainly passed her child having days, being promised that they were going to have an offspring, and not only that, their descendants would would outnumber the stars that he could see in the sky. It would be hard to believe. Yet it says in verse 6 that Abraham believed God... And it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't from a work that Abraham did. It wasn't from his faithfulness. And and he would prove faithful in a number of places. His justification, his being righteous, would be shown by the works that he did later, the good works that he did. But it was simply by believing God, by trusting God and his promise and his word, that Abraham was counted as righteous. And our faith must be in God and his promises, his word, his gospel, or else we cannot stand before God justified. We cannot stand before him counted as righteous unless we trust him and his promises and his works. And this is so key because the false teachers in Galatia claimed that the Gentiles, in order to be truly righteous if you really want to advance past this basic righteousness that you have in Christ, if you want to grow in righteousness, you must get circumcised and you must keep the law of Moses. And if the, they were saying if the Gentiles were actually entering covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they needed to keep the law of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And although Abraham's life predates the law of Moses. Many Jews, and therefore Jewish Christians, believed that Abraham followed the law before it formally came about. That is a part of their Jewish tradition, that Abraham was faithful to the law of God even before God gave the law. Now, that's a hard thing to argue, and there's not just a ton of evidence in Scripture. But what's so important for Paul's argument isn't just that he shows that Abraham was before circum- Abraham was given this prom- promise before circumcision was commanded before the law came it's important because Genesis 15:6 shows that even if Abraham did keep the law even if he did he wasn't justified by it but by faith he was counted righteous because he believed God and his promises see the false teachers wanted to claim Abraham as their father but they didn't understand how to become his children. Now, you if you grew up in church, you probably remember a song. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm, left all that. Because we want to be Abraham's children. Because we know that if we are children of Abraham, we inherit the promises given to Abraham. But they were saying that Father Abraham had many sons, and we are some of them, and you might be, if you go get circumcised and follow the law of Moses, which Abraham followed even before it existed. And Paul says, no. Paul says Abraham's children, in verse 7, are those who have faith. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It says that Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Listen so closely. The one true gospel, the same gospel preached by Paul, was preached to Abraham hundreds of years before its fulfillment. And a core element of that gospel is seen in verse 8 because it says, In you shall all the nations be blessed. A core element of the full gospel is that it is good news for all nations, for all peoples. Now, that doesn't mean every time we preach the gospel we have to say those words. But it means if we are saying this is the gospel, a part of that gospel, whether it's said explicitly or not, is that it is good news For the Gentile as well as the Jew. It is good news for those in Africa as well as those in North America and South America and Asia and so on and so on and so on. It is good news for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And it says here in verse 9, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. How do we become Abraham's children? By becoming God's children through faith. How do we inherit the promises given to Abraham? By believing the one who fulfilled those promises, and that is Jesus Christ. Looking now at verses 10 through 14, a key part of this argument. Uh, So far we've seen that the righteous received the Spirit through hearing with faith. That's what we saw in verses 1 through 5. And then we saw that the righteous are called righteous because of their faith, which is what we see through Abraham. And now we see that it is the righteous that shall live by faith relying on the Spirit. Now, in these verses, Paul is going to make four basic statements, and then he's going to follow them up with Scripture from the Old Testament to back up what he is saying. Because Paul's opponents are using God's Word, they're using the Scripture to distort the Gospel, and Paul is wanting to correct their misunderstanding. He says for uh, in verse 10 for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse for it is written cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them Paul's argument here is that if you want the law you can have it if you want the law you can have it but you will be under a curse you will be under a curse. Because once you start following the law, if you do not follow it perfectly, you will be guilty of it all. Now, what does this word cursed mean? We talked about this in the first sermon on Galatians because we were dealing with Galatians 1 where he uses the word "curse" there. But it's worth mentioning again. That does not mean that someone cusses you out, okay? When we talk, we say, oh, they cursed me out. Well, usually what they mean by that is someone just had a lot of foul language and it was unpleasant and everyone walked away and no one was really hurt, just bruised feelings and all that. It was was maybe something you didn't like, but that's not what he's talking about. And by cursed, he doesn't mean that someone, like, put a spell on them, like, ooh, you know, if you do this, your grandchild will be like this. You know, it wasn't some kind of magical thing. When he says the word cursed, he means what the Bible means. And what that means is that the wrath of God will be visited on them. Literally, that they will be sent to hell. Being cursed is being sentenced to hell. And Paul uses Deuteronomy 27 to make this argument that everyone who relies on works of the law will be cursed. When you rely on those works, we already know in Scripture that no one follows them perfectly. When we rely on them as the thing that makes us righteous, we will fail. And we will receive the judgment that is coming. The judgment of those who are far from God, who are sinners. That is the experience of hell, God's wrath upon us. He then says, in verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one is justified, that is counted righteous, before God by the law. He quotes Habakkuk 2.4 The righteous shall live by faith. He's saying that the righteous do not live. Habakkuk doesn't say the righteous shall live by works of the law. Habakkuk says the righteous shall live by faith. And this should not be surprising. Why? We can go all the way back to Genesis and see Abraham being counted righteous, not by works of the law. They weren't even there yet. But by faith. And so the law cannot... Justify a man or a woman. We see in verse 12, he says that the law is not of faith; rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Quoting there Leviticus 18:5, he's saying, he's basically saying this: relying on works of the law is a zero-sum game. Okay, you know, most of the time when people say it's a zero-sum game, it's actually it's actually not. Okay, that's that's a thing politicians say, and they just say it, and it's not true most of the time, okay? But here it is the case. If you rely on works of the law, it's a zero-sum game. You either rely on them or you don't. And if you rely on them, you got to rely on the whole thing, and you got to keep it perfectly. But it was never intended to do that. God did not give the law to man, to the Jewish people, that they may justify themselves. God gave it in part so that they may see their need for a justification from him that they may see their need for a savior that they may see their need for a justifier which is jesus christ that that is what the law was intended to do here it wasn't meant to be a system by which we could become right before god and that's what the, Galatian, the false teachers in Galatia were doing. They were turning the law into a system that they could understand, they could control, that they could game, that they could use for their benefit. But that's not the purpose here. Now, verse 13, the last thing Paul says here. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, quoting Deuteronomy twenty-one twenty-three. there. This is so central. Ask yourself this question. If you were the Galatians, and you were hearing this from Paul, and you hear these words, you must ask yourself, did Jesus die for nothing? Because if the works of the law were meant to make you righteous, then Jesus died for nothing. But he didn't, did he? Here in verse 13 it says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became a curse for us. Now, in the scripture that he's quoting, Deuteronomy uh, 21, 23, it says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree or who, who is hanged on a tree. Now, that's not just because there's something magical about trees for which hanging on them makes you cursed. It was more the case that someone who is cursed would be the kind of person who gets the punishment of hanging on a tree. Now, how did Jesus die? He was crucified on a Roman cross. Actually, this pulpit shows more or less what that would have looked like to some extent. It would have had a cross beam in which his hands were nailed, and he would have hanged there with his... With only his feet or his ankles nailed to the, the post. And, and he would have hanged there until he died, usually actually by suffocation. Now, it could be the case, and it was not uncommon for them to have put a pole in the ground for which they came and brought the crossbeam and hooked it up to it. But actually, common practice for the Romans was more likely to do this to go to a tree take off any branches that were in the way, and then attach a crossbeam to a tree. One, it was much easier. Well, really, that's the only reason, as far as I know. It was much easier. And so it's very likely that Jesus was hanged on a cross that was attached to a tree on a highway leading into Jerusalem. It's very probable that that's the case. So that everyone entering into the city could see those who were being capitally punished as a warning, as a threat, as a lesson. And so, in the same way that the curse of man and woman came through their sin, disobeying God by taking the fruit from a tree, so Jesus became a curse for us by hanging on a tree himself. But this tree did not bring a curse. It brought life, like the other tree that was in the garden. And so Jesus becomes a curse for us, facing the punishment that we deserved for every sin. As the song says, for every sin on him was laid, and Christ redeemed us from that curse that came through the law to us. And sometimes people ask, could it have been done any other way? I remember sitting in Scotland at St. Andrews, hearing a lecture on theology. And I remember one of my lecturers, who I disagreed with before I say what he said, making the comments that he wasn't so sure that it mattered how Jesus died or the amount of punishment he received or the amount of like suffering he endured, but that you know, the tr- that he thought... That, that Jesus could have died in a nursing home at 65, 70, and it still would have redeemed us. Now, whether that speculation is correct or not, I think uh, this quote from Timothy George helps clarify how we should think about these things. He said, To wonder whether Christ could have accomplished the work of redemption by dying in some other manner, say, being drowned in the Sea of Galilee, ...or hurled to his death from the precipice of Nazareth... ...or butchered as an infant by Herod... ...is like asking whether God could have become incarnate in a pumpkin. Vain curiosity bordering on blasphemy. The cross was neither an accident of history... ...nor a divine emergency measure... ...brought into remedy an unforeseen situation... There was a cross in the heart of God from all eternity, for Jesus was, quote, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. It is not our job to speculate on whether Jesus could have died in some other fashion, but to accept that God's plan from the beginning was to die, for the Son of God to die in human in a human body, a human nature, on a cross in Nazareth, or in, Jer- in Jerusalem. That there was the intention of God. That Jesus' becoming a curse for us was the way, I think, in which God's love was fully displayed for all to see. And it is what Paul says somewhere else, folly to many, but for those to- who believe It is everything. It is life. It is salvation. It is redemption. It is justification. It is the whole thing. It is the blessing. In verse 14, it says that he did this, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The reason Jesus died on the cross was that so that every blessing of God, every blessing promised to Abraham, might come to not only the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, to you and to me, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Why did Jesus die? So that we might receive the spirit and live. Let's pray.